Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup, get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks, sir. I'll have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football, good lad. I don't throw teacups, it's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> another weekend, another fixture chalked off. Another three points in the bank for Leicester City. It took a long time for most of us to grapple with the idea that Leicester could actually win the league. But by the time it actually happens, it may end up being an absolute anti-climax. Oh, yeah, of course, Leicester won the league. Well, obviously, been... Leicester won yeah. the league. Yeah, I mean, that's been coming for weeks and months. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That was Murph. Hi, Kent. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm good, and I've got a lot of respect for Claudio Ranieri. He's a man who... Doesn't show, doesn't feel it's a show of weakness to take a holiday mid-season. No. Uh, he jetted off there last time. They had holiday a City. Oh yeah, this. That, do you remember last time the, the whole? He just said they said, "What about the team? I mean, what, what are they going to do?" Oh, they're all. I don't heading off. I don't know where they're going. They're pissed somewhere. It's fine. They're, they're just doing their thing. Uh, this time, there's an international break coming up, and he's heading to Rome. I think again. We might have gone home last time. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he's. he's, he's he, you made the point in the other podcast today, Ken, that he looks like he's feeling the pressure a bit in terms of how demonstrative he is on the touchline, more so than usual in the last couple of games. But maybe he's noted that himself and decided he just needs to just walk around that beautiful city of Rome and have a glass of wine or two to relax. Well, he's, he has got... He, he's more keenly aware of what what's at stake and what they have to lose, I think, than anybody else at Leicester. Uh, I mean... He is a guy who, remember, was kind of dismissed as an also-ran, like one of life's losers by Roman Abramovich. Um, I remember at the time when, you know, Abramovich took over Chelsea in 2003. Ranieri had already been there for three years and he ditched them after one season. Hmm. They finished second and they got to the semi-final of the Champions League and Abramovich decided he, you know, this guy isn't going to do it. I remember Eugene Schwidler, who was one of Abramovich's um, Henchman is, is an unfair word. But, you know, uh, saying, saying at the time, one of his associates, associates. Um, who helps out with Chelsea, um, saying at the time, look, you know, it was, nothing, um, it was nothing bad, really. I mean, Claudio, everybody liked him. I mean, he was a really popular manager at Chelsea. The fans all loved him. Players all loved him. Uh, Roman just decided he just couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And that's why we decided to bring in Jose Mourinho. Uh, because this guy just wasn't going to get over the line. Now, <laughs> I think, you know, if, if Pedro Neri wins the league at Leicester, 
It's going to mean a lot of things. But one of the things, I'm sure he remembers Eugene Schwidler. I'm sure he remembers uh, Eugene Schwidler saying he just couldn't do it. And I think it turns out he could have done it. Maybe if he'd been Chelsea manager in 2004, 2005, and, you know, had signed the players that they'd signed, they'd, you know, they brought in these same guys, Drogba and Robin and whatnot. I think maybe Claudio Ranieri could have won the league with, with Chelsea. One man who disagrees with you, Ken, mm. in a very polite manner, is Damien Duff. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to Graham Hunter interviewing Duffer on his podcast in the last few days. Uh, Duff was obviously singing the praises of Claudio Ranieri, said he was amazing, said he's a brilliant motivator, said he brought in a lot of the players that Robin, he says, he thinks was actually bought while Ranieri was still there. Now, Ranier, Ranieri was. He, yeah. he was... Uh, Czech uh, as well was, was a they, they arrived in the summer of 2004. And Duff was a Ranieri uh, signing. So these guys were, were um, you know, he essentially was saying he could spot a good player and he had a uh, great motivator, saying all these nice things. But when they got on to talk about Mourinho, uh, I think Graham asked him directly, or certainly he made the point directly, that they needed Mourinho to win the league. That just the level of detail, the, the training, the intensity about everything went up a couple of notches. And while he likes to, he would have liked to have thought they could win the league under Ranieri. He, looking back on it, they probably needed the, the uh, well, whatever it was that Mourinho gave. Well, I think they would have won the league under Ranieri. Actually. Oh yeah, well, it's just that Duff played for Ranieri. He was in the team. Well, Duff, what Duff doesn't want to end up in Jose Mourinho's little black book or bulging black book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's got like forty boxes of black Filing books. Cabinet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know it's just names going in. He has to. He's actually had to automate it. He doesn't even handwrite the names in anymore. They just he just pages a secretary and and they, they type it up. Um, so you know you know I mean okay, Mourinho was was a great, I mean Mourinho was a great manager. Mourinho, I'm not understating his uh, achievement. They did set a Premier League record. I think in his first season, 95 points. Um, and the second season was pretty dominant as well. I just happen to think that the main reason for that was the players that they had, really. Um, they had, nobody had ever really done what they'd done in English football uh, up till then. I mean, Blackburn had done something a little bit like it in 94, 95, 90, you know, that sort of period and ended up winning the league. But Chelsea's spending at the time was just obliterating everybody else. There was, nobody could... You know, I mean, Arsene Wenger, I think, was was shell shocked by it. Remember that when Ranieri lost it, when Ranieri didn't win the title, um, in in his final season at Chelsea, the team that actually beat them was the invincible Arsenal team. They managed to finish ahead of Chelsea, and Chelsea knocked that team out, the invincible, the so-called invincible Arsenal in the Champions League quarterfinals. Now. Claudio Ranieri had been at Chelsea for a few years, but he'd, ne- you know, he'd managed to qualify them for the Champions League. That was a bit in his in the last game of the 2003 season. But he never before looked like um, he was likely to win the league with Chelsea until that last season. What was the difference between that season and the others? The difference is that he'd got you know, £110 million worth of new players. With a, with a second uh, summer of that kind of spending and more uh, excellent new players arriving, I think that Ranieri probably would have got over the line as well. You know, yourself and Duffer just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one, Ken. It's time for your report on sport. Um, I mean, that's one of the things at stake for Ranieri, kind of the, the you know, proving all your Schwiddlers wrong. Everyone who laughed at me when I lost to the Faroe Islands, well, looks like old Claudio knows a thing or two about the game. Um, one man who's uh, who's uh, not at all grudging in his admiration for Claudio Ranieri is Alan Pardew. 
manager of once fashionable Crystal Palace, <laughs> uh, who uh, who lost to Leicester over the weekend, and uh, Alan Pardew caused a few uh, ripples with his program notes. Um, you know, you've got you've got a. <laughs> I even like the picture of Alan Pardew in his program notes. He's like, uh, look at it there. See him? Yeah. So it's so it's the deeply bronzed Alan Pardew. Uh, wearing a shirt with the top two buttons undone, looking pretty relaxed, silver hair, uh, looking looking amazing, you know, like uh, kind of a Lovejoy type, you know, a, a handsome older man, uh, looking really happy as well, which Alan Pardew hasn't been for a few months. Mm. Oh, and he's getting increasing, increasingly crotchety and irritable in recent weeks. And... Um, he says, essentially, uh, well, he starts off by saying, Claudio Ranieri and his players deserve unbelievable credit for establishing a five-point lead. And while the Stars have aligned to get them to this point in the season with very few injuries, the top teams falling well before short, uh, well short and some tight games going their way, <laughs> <laughs> they have earned the right to be where they are right now. Unlike Leicester, we have been unfortunate to lose key players for long periods, while the fine margins that decide games in this league have also gone against us too often in recent months. Today's opponents have been awarded 10 penalties this season, which is double the total of any other team. That is true, actually. It's, a lot of it has to do with Jamie Vardy, who is adept at winning penalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, that extreme speed and slight frame uh, are a winning combination when it comes to penalty area collisions. Um, blah, blah, blah. But so Alan Pardew's talking about penalties. I wonder where this is going to go. Um, so enough has been said about the late penalty decision. This was the penalty that Palace conceded against Liverpool in the 94th minute. Enough has been said, Pardew says. <laughs> and I would like to go point on. out <laughs> that my annoyance after the game was not directed at the match officials who have a tough task in a game where so many professional players take a tumble all too easily. What annoyed me most were Jamie Carragher's strong comments after the game stating that Christian Benteke was right to go down to win the penalty. I couldn't disagree more with those sentiments. It's a shame that so many former and current players share his opinion that diving is a valid tactic. Damien Duff would be one of those, actually. Yeah, he said that to you. Reaffirmed that uh, with Graham. Tells the, tells the youngsters at uh, Rovers that he's coaching to... If there's, if there's contact, he, you know, I think he was clear to say, don't necessarily just go diving, but if, if there's contact, don't try too hard to stay up. Yeah. I mean, look, you've, uh, you've, you've got... Just a, enough wiggle room there for a young, impressionable footballer to make his own mind up yeah. on that. Yeah. Plausible so you're saying it's okay, boss? From Coach Duff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what you're talking about. Would Carragher have had the same opinion if Wilf had gone down, Wilfred Zaha, had gone down in the box in the 94th minute of a massive game at Anfield? I suspect not. But loyalties can blur opinions at times. Alan Pardew there uh, can sees quite clearly how maybe how Jamie Carragher's uh, opinions on this penalty may have been affected by the fact that he used to play for one of the clubs. Pardew was the manager, the current manager of one of those clubs, of course, is immune from uh, the same effect. Of course, we were then given a soft penalty in our FA Cup quarterfinal at Reading. Not for one second do I subscribe to the theory that any touch is enough to send anyone down in search of a penalty. My players would never be encouraged to do that. I would hope that other influential voices in the game also start to promote those sentiments. So Are you mentioning Johnny Sexton there, no? No. Uh, okay, well, there's that at least. Nothing from, uh, n- nothing on, uh, on Sexton. But yeah, that's, 
Savan Pardew not, not impressed. Uh, ultimately uh, lost again. But still probably um, still probably okay. I think they're they're far enough ahead they don't really need to worry. Um, uh, but where were we? Uh, so there was a lot of stuff. Pardew can, can at least take some satisfaction from the miserable experience uh, suffered by Liverpool. Almost as like some kind of uh, karmic payback for what happened, what they did to Crystal Palace. Uh, in that they, for the first time uh, in the Premier League era, were two goals ahead at halftime and managed to lose the game. Uh, really stunning. Uh, and not only two goals ahead, but two goals plus a penalty save. So it was, this was kind of like uh, replicating almost what, what Everton had managed a couple of weeks back against West Ham. You know, it was like, uh, although it was Everton who missed the penalty, whereas Liverpool who saved the penalty. Um, I think the standout statistic from this game is that uh, how many shots on target do you think Southampton had? Bearing in mind that there was a penalty saved, how many shots on target must they have had? Well, four. What's the minimum number of shots on target they must have had? Four. Mm-hmm. So how many do you think they had? Five. Four. <laughs> it was four, Owen. And uh, yet again, we guess wrong when Ken throws a. Well, if you'd, if you'd let me finish, Owen, yeah. I was about to say four. My apologies. Uh, and it is the, it really was the kind of game which which makes you wonder who the new Liverpool goalkeeper is going to be, <laughs> because uh, honestly, it's it's just you watch you watch these games and the ball is just flying past. I mean, there's a reputation that the Simon Mignolet has shot stopper. But why isn't he stopping those shots? He just doesn't stop any shots. There was a shot. First of all, the, the first goal was a, a mistake by uh, John Flanagan, the captain. Um, who you know the f- the fact that John Flanagan was captaining Liverpool was like uh, you know he's like Joan of Arc or something he's like this like young uh, hero but you know he still gives the ball away to to Pele who uh, who puts in Mane and then it's a goal it should never be a goal though because Mendes uh, you you shouldn't be conceding a goal from that position you know, the ball just flashes past him why does the ball flash past him well he's he's p- probably a little bit too close to the shooter there's no need to be out that close to him. The ball is almost past him before he has time to react. And then he kind of looks around and the goal is a long way away. <laughs> Why is the goal so far away? Um, second one is a shot from outside the box. A good shot, but again, a great shot stopper. You might expect to sometimes stop on those shots. And then the last goal, he actually sets up with a Gary Owen from his uh, from a kick out. He plays a, a Gary Owen, which travels 20 to 25 yards. It was a contestable kick. Yeah. I mean, it, he actually, in rugby, a contestable kick is a kick that you can yourself chase. And Minilay could definitely have headed the ball away from his own clearance. Yeah. Given the height and pitiful lack of distance he managed to get into it. Well, once he saw it, once he saw where it was going, he maybe should have gone after it. <laughs> he, he That might have been... I don't, think he's, I don't think people are, people, his reputation would have been enhanced, even if he had headed that ball 40 yards. I don't think people are saying, that's what I want from my keeper. No, it would have been an orthodox moment of goalkeeping, but it might have been better than what actually happened, um, which is to say the ball just, uh, Joe Allen and Martin Skirtle managed to get into a, a confusion. And uh, it Bundled went straight off through. the ball by tiny little Ward Prowse is what happened. <laughs> well, Ward Prowse is five foot three, right? So I think, I think you had to, uh, I mean, this is obviously a guy who was given a new contract a few months ago. You know, I don't. I can't imagine if they're serious. You know, they can't really be thinking they're going to start 
next season with this guy as their, as their main goalkeeper. Although it wasn't Mignolet, but rather a compatriot of his that was getting uh, criticised most by Jurgen Klopp after the game. Benteke. Well, I, I mean, I thought this was quite poor from Jurgen Klopp. Um, he obviously does like to do this thing of after the game, he marches onto the field and he uh, usually to hug the players, you know, and, and, and pat them on the ass and all this kind of stuff. But on this occasion, he was obviously having a go at Benteke, who then, in a kind of sulky way, sort of turned away and was walking. You know, he's like you know, this. And maybe Benteke was thinking, this really isn't the time or place to do this. You know, why, do you, why are you doing this in front of everyone? Who are you, Phil Brown? You know, is that what, is that what we're, we're talking about here? Um, and Klopp, you could see that he was obviously annoyed. Now, he seemed to be annoyed with Benteke because he missed a chance. I don't know if, if it was necessarily that, because I didn't even think it was that bad a miss by Benteke. I thought the player who was at fault was mainly Lallana. Adam Lallana um, played the ball through, but it was a really poor ball. For some reason, he played a, a left-footed ball sort of curling out, which took Benteke to the wrong position, really. A right-footed ball. I mean, Lallana is... is Curling out, as right in curling footed. back towards Benteke, as opposed to... Curling towards the wing. towards the goal. As, a, as opposed to the goal. But yeah. where, ben, where Benteke was, the right foot of ball would have gone back, would have put him into a better shooting position. He would have had to break stride, Ken, as the commentators would usually yeah. say. These are small details, but, you know, if, you, if, that, if that indeed was the reason why Klopp was annoyed, it seemed as though, actually, okay, maybe, you know, Luis Suarez might score this chance. Benteke on a different day might score the chance, but it's not that easy a chance. You know, I don't think he was given a great pass. But um, Klopp then afterwards said, well, I'm just, it's my job to talk to the players. But it's not really, you know, that uh, talking to the players is one thing. Uh, humiliating them in front of, I mean, is it humiliating? I mean, you do see players, you do see managers shouting at their players. More often, though, it's during a game. You know what I mean? If they do something in a game, the manager oh, shouts at them. Klopp does that a lot. You know, it's usually Alberto Moreno. He's usually standing right next to them and does something stupid. And, and he shouts at him. But somehow I think during a game is a little bit different from after a game. Um, you know, you, you you don't really have the same excuse of, you know, in the moment you get carried away. After a game, I think you, you should be keeping that in the it's dressing room. Not quite Phil Brown at halftime for Hull City sitting all his players down in the middle of the penalty area and lecturing them. No. But it is... Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen quite a, quite a few times for Klopp at Liverpool because, as you say, he comes onto the pitch. Whether they win or they lose, oftentimes he comes on. And that's real heat of the moment stuff. There's no mm. Whatever he's saying is off the cuff and players' reactions are bound to be emotive at times, which is great if Adam Lallana just banged in a winner or something, but it's not so great if, if things like this have happened. So I, I can see this potentially being a difficulty for him at the club. Yeah, well, I, I I don't think, let's say I don't think there's much chemistry between him and Christian Benteke. Oh yeah, it won't be a, it won't be a problem going forward for him and Benteke because he won't be there. No, but, uh, I mean, I, remember, I, I even remember uh, what the penalty shootout, remember the penalty shootout in the um, Capital One Cup final against Manchester City and uh, Klopp, you know, gathered the players together before the penalty shootout and, you know, shattered a few things and then finished it up with a, yeah, you know, Let's go or whatever it was he was shouting, and you can just see Benteke who's standing there in his in his like anorak, obviously a not a non participant. He's just sort of on the outskirts of this team huddle, and then Klopp goes yeah, and the players are all like, yeah, and except for Benteke who just looks around with this sort of with you know wide eyes and sort of dubious little grin. <laughs> yeah, there goes 
Jurgen again. I just don't think they're really connecting. Yeah. You know, so it may be that he's gone. And Jordan Henderson, apparently, also a uh, uh, considered by Jurgen Klopp to be an expendable member of the team. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're uh, going to move him on as well. Uh, a couple of reports uh, say over the last couple of days. But the one uh, bright, sp- uh, bright spot for him over the weekend was the impassioned defence uh, offered of Liverpool's performance by victorious Manchester United manager Louis van Gaal. Um, <laughs> van Gaal, after this win against uh, City, um, he said, uh, he essentially was saying this is particularly good because we worked so hard in the game on Thursday night against Liverpool. He says, we've given everything to beat Liverpool, then you have to play City. You've seen, for example, Liverpool's result at Southampton, half-time, 0-2, final, uh, final time, 3-2. I have not seen the match, but I can only conclude that it is because of the tiredness. That is what we have done to them. Um, so essentially saying that Liverpool, and he repeated this a few times, and he repeated this in theme in his various uh, comments after the press, that this uh, failure to recover after the Europa League is the reason why they um, reason why they played so badly. He also uh, breathes a huge half. sigh of relief that uh, he doesn't have any of these pesky Thursday night games messing up his uh, his business as well. To which, mm, I would say many other fans would have a pretty lukewarm uh, attitude towards that, given that it's at least as good of a chance to continue in the Euro- Europa League to get into the Champions League as it is to maybe pip West Ham United to the fourth place Champions League spot. Well, it depends. I mean, I I, actually, I still think the league is their better chance. Well, I, I mean, okay, it obviously is now. Yeah. I mean, that's true. But if even if they were, you know, if they, for instance, were in Liverpool's place in a draw against Borussia Dortmund in the quarterfinals... I wouldn't fancy them. I mean, I don't fancy Liverpool to get through that tie. I wouldn't fancy Manchester United either. I think they've got a better chance of finishing ahead of um, City and West Ham. I mean, particularly City, who are just... I mean, I was I, I couldn't believe how, how bad they were. You know, Well, I could, I could believe it because I've seen it before, but I, I, I kept expecting some, some, them to kind of crank up the tempo, and they just can't do it. You know, well, there's a lot of shots and so forth, but I don't know if that means a huge amount. You were talking, you were talking chances. about Southampton earlier, yeah. I mean, I can remember only the Aguero header off the post, which was well, Aguero. Sorry, Aguero did have a, have another decent chance where he sort of stepped inside and missed at the near post, and um, usually you would expect him to score that. But you know, there was the header that Aguero had off the post um, when Yaya Toure showed, you know, this amazing quality that he that he has you know he just swept over this amazing like majestic cross and Aguero headed it against the near post yeah Torre did nothing else in the game mm. you know there's just how how much longer can you know a couple of moments of technical quality continue to justify just shambling ineffectiveness I mean he's he's just obviously he's he's a guy who you know, it's pretty clear that Guardiola is not going to have space for him he already sold him Five, six, five years ago, six years ago at Barcelona. You know, I don't think he's going to have a place for this incarnation of Yaya Torre. But, th- I mean, there's so many players like that in this team now. Um, I, I think they're... Yeah, uh, literally about uh, about three quarters of the team, starting team, will be gone. Yeah. When Pep Guardiola comes in. Uh, and I don't, I don't know how Guardiola's going to handle that. Guardiola's not used to that sort of Okay, we've we've basically got two players now, 
I mean, there's the you know Sterling and Kevin De Bruyne are the two I'm thinking of. These are the two guys who. who well, Aguero too, surely. And well, like, Joe Hart's a pretty good. Well, one, Aguero, you know? yeah, but He's not you know, sell Joe Hart, don't he? you start to get a little bit annoyed as well by Aguero's inability to play a lot of the time? Isn't it just a bit? Yeah, I think it's I think it's exacerbated when they don't have anyone else to replace him that scores goals. Like he's a, he's obviously a really good player, so mm. you keep him you keep him on. If he gets injured, he gets injured. I mean, you buy someone else who's really good as well. But I mean, you keep Aguero. Mm. Yeah, you keep him because he's he's a world class talent, and you also keep him because I don't think another top club in Europe who could, the kind of club that could afford Sergio Aguero afford to pay his enormous salary would buy Sergio Aguero at this stage. Because why would you buy a player with this injury history? Why would you buy a player who's who's missing two-thirds of the time? I was comparing him to Vardy. You know, uh, Vardy has played like a thousand more minutes in the, in the league. I mean, it's, it's you know, 11 matches worth 65% more, or, or rather, not 65% more. Aguero has played 65% of the minutes that Vardy has played. Mm. Now, if Aguero had played all that time, City might be top of the league. Yeah, over-reliance is the issue. And they got rid of uh, Dzeko, for example. Now, I don't know if Dzeko is necessarily a player of the, you know, a Pep Guardiola caliber I don't style think so. player. I don't think he necessarily is. But certainly he could have could, delivered quite a bit for them this season, all right? And mm. yet they got rid of him. There's, It's just, uh, we'll be talking about this in uh, a little while to John Bruin. But uh, it does seem that Manchester City have had a other clubs, Manchester in particular, get slagged off quite a lot for their transfer policy, but I don't know how much, Manchester, how much sense Man City's has made over the last few years. Very little. And, you know, when you consider uh, that they're supposed to be the kind of, the, the shining light of how to run your club, and they also have... Yeah, not know, just money, but also brains, also youth policy, supposedly. A yeah. holistic approach. I don't no idea what that ever is supposed to mean in football. Yeah. Uh, the, like, the so, youth team policy yeah. means that Stoke and... You know Watford and uh, and all the rest of the teams in the middle part of the division will get all these players. Mm. That's what a youth policy means at a club like uh, Man City and a club like Chelsea. Yeah. That you're producing all these really good players who will play really well for teams that are coming to Stamford Bridge and the Etihad once a season. Well, it may that's, that's basically it. Like, you know? it you're it, beefing up your opposition. Yeah, it may be that. Well, well, one one advantage of that at least is that you you get to improve your financial fair play position you know if you're selling off youth players you know you're kind of generating income uh which which all counts towards your financial fair play kind of stats which maybe is something city are thinking about i mean in terms of aguero guardiola i think is used to being able to rely on players he gets really annoyed by injuries remember what he did to the doctor by munich you know um the doctor ends up resigning because Guardiola is blaming him for injuries. He thinks injuries are preventable. He doesn't he agree. He fake applauded him in the middle of a game. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> like, yeah. That's pretty hard. That's 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 Guardiola is actually one of the other other coaches you can imagine maybe doing what Klopp did. I mean, you could even see it actually because you know uh, the Bayern game the other the other night, the Juventus game. Yeah, because uh, because when it's extra time, obviously the the talk, the team talk is on the field because they don't go back into the dressing room before the start of extra time. You could see Guardiola absolutely mm-hmm. lashing them out of it. But, you know, at least his anger was directed at the team as a whole. But he did fake applaud that doctor. He doesn't like it. Sergio Aguero would really wind him up. You know, either, either a doctor would get fired or Aguero would get sold. Or maybe Aguero would suddenly end up playing all the games like most of other Guardiola's players. I mean that's that seems to be a. I mean Lionel Messi used to get injured too. Oh, you're 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 not going to let me get away with this. You're actually going to give out to me in front of my peers. <laughs> right? Okay, I'll probably fit then. Yeah. 
I guess I've I guess I've got to do it. You haven't mentioned Big Sam in a number of weeks. So I'm going to give you a very quick window here. Yeah, did you did you get a little window. subconscious about it? No, no. Just uh, I've been waiting on the the final part of the season for for Big Sam to come back and start playing a major role. Did you see his face? When Sunderland scored. (laughs) I can't believe that they had a camera like right (laughs) up in his grill. You know, it was amazing. It was like, there goes a football man. Oh, his face. Oh, such a... I found myself laughing at it. And I didn't know why I was laughing at it. But I did laugh heartily at it. Because such extreme uh, gloating smugness (laughs) is just hilarious. It's, you know, it was just, yeah. I mean, obviously, he's pretty happy his side of just taking out one nil lead in the derby. Uh, but it wasn't just that. Uh, it was also the fact that they'd scored from a set-piece situation against Rafa, zonal marking, oh, yeah. uh, uh, now to do with the Champions League win, Benitez. And Big Sam just looked... He, literally as happy as I've ever seen him. It was a real... Uh, it, it, it wasn't just happiness, like the kind of happiness he might feel, you know, at his daughter's wedding or something like that. It was the kind of complete happiness that's only possible when a hated enemy is also <laughs> suffering horribly uh, as, you, uh, as, as you're happy. So that was, that was... And then, of course, it was, it was taken away from him in the end by, um, by Mitrovic's equaliser. Yeah. Still, though, uh, still alive, Sunderland's still alive, didn't lose at least. Um, Allardyce just can't wait to get back in action. But, he says, we've got another goddamn two weeks to wait before we play again. Uh, we had a long way to play this one, well I wanted a game next week. Now we've got another goddamn two weeks for football associations to make money with stupid bloody friendlies. <laughs> um, so he, he'd, play, he'd play the game tomorrow. If he could, it's like the anti Van Hal. There isn't, there's way too much recovery time. You know, the last thing I want at this stage of the season is a nice two week break to train my players uh, in, in preparation for a relegation fight. I would, I would actually rather we start the game right now. Uh, Benitez, for his part, uh, saying, um, you know, he, he's, he's, he's trying to appear very zen, Rafael, Rafael Benitez. He, he just keeps saying, I just take the positives. And that's the kind of guy I am. I just look at the positives. <laughs> not necessarily true. Give uh, another week, week or two of that. You could see a lot of good things. Still not enough. Today in the second half, a lot of good things. Still not quite enough. Um, but we will fight until the last game uh, and until the last minute. So we have to do it. I, I find it hard to, to see who's going who's gonna to go down. out of the. It's going to be two out of Norwich, uh, uh, Sunderland and Newcastle. And Norwich are the ones with the Irish players, um, Newcastle and Sunderland. It's hard to decide. It's going to be two of them. Um, I saw a point by um, Sporting Intelligence earlier that Newcastle, Sunderland and Villa would be like the three biggest clubs ever to get relegated. Yeah. You know what I mean? If the three of them were to go down together, it would be like, wow, there's a lot of league titles, a lot of history just, um, you know, disappearing down the plug hole of the league. Also, there's a lot of drama with Newcastle that you lose there if they're out of the Premier League again. I don't think uh, anyone particularly wants that, but fair point regarding Norwich and the Irish. Tell that to Wessel once. Exactly, that's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. 
Richie Sadler is here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Jack Pitbrook of The Independent is ready to talk to us, Jack, about the, well, Spurs keeping up their end of the bargain yesterday. But a lot of people, Harry Kane I saw after the match was saying, look, a lot of people were saying there was loads of pressure on us playing after Leicester had won again. But we were pretty relaxed about the whole thing. In fairness, they did look relaxed. The proof was in the 3-0 win against Bournemouth. But do you reckon it's maybe going to become demoralising, chasing such an apparently relentless opponent as Leicester City? Yeah, I think it must be because they are because they're playing so well. I mean, Spurs were brilliant yesterday. They looked like the best team in the country, which is what they've been for the last six months, really. And yet they know that the chance of their winning the Premier League are probably, I don't know, 10, 20% from here, because that that five-point gap is likely to get bigger rather than smaller, I think, in the next four or five games. And that means that Leicester will probably be able to do it with a match or two to spare. And Spurs must know they're never going to have a better chance than this. And they're probably they're probably not going to play much better than they have done since about September or October. So as much as everyone is behind the team, and they are, and it was an incredibly positive atmosphere at White Hart Lane yesterday, as it has been for most of the season, you sense that it might start to get on their mind or get on their nerves a bit, what's going to happen. You said something interesting there, Jack, which is that Spurs have probably been the best team in the country. For... Yeah, absolutely. How can you say that when Leicester are clearly the best team? I mean, uh, you know, you, you you think that, but can you justify that belief to me? When yeah, Leicester so I don't mean necessarily over the course of the whole season. Like Spurs started slowly and didn't really hit their hit top gear until maybe September when they beat Manchester, Manchester City 4-1 at home. So I don't mean over the whole season. I mean over the last six months. And I just think they're playing better. Like they they put on better performances. It's not just... You know, they don't just defend well, score on the break. And then nothing against how Leicester do, because they Leicester do what they do brilliantly and better than anyone else we've seen in, in England for years. But Spurs just put on these more complete performances. They dominate teams more. They score more goals. They concede fewer goals. Their, their top level of performance is just higher than Leicester's. And, I mean, yesterday was a good example. When they beat Watford at home 1-0... They beat Manchester City at home. They beat West Ham at home. The Manchester City away was a good performance as well, but not quite as dominant. But they've they have produced the most of the best performances in the Premier League this season, more than Leicester. Well, how? I mean, we end up talking about Leicester here almost more than Tottenham. But why is it that Leicester? I mean, in your opinion, from what you've seen this season, how are they managing to succeed so brilliantly with um, a kind of you know, as you say, maybe they can't quite hit the heights of Tottenham when, when Tottenham are playing well, or I'm sure Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal have beaten Leicester in the league twice this season. Um, they're clearly better at some aspects of the game. How is it though that Leicester are just consistently getting the results? We've seen lots of teams go out there and say, right, we're going to be compact, we're going to be quick in the break. You know, they've maybe got a fast guy, they've got a skillful guy. But nobody has ever managed to put it together in this way before. You know, no no club like that, you know, a club that's that's fancied by most people to get relegated at the start of the season has ever managed to do it. So what's different about this team? Um, I think that, 
I think they've, I mean, basically they're better at doing, they're better at doing what they're trying to do than almost any other team that's tried to do this in the Premier League for ages. Um, that's because of, I think they've kind of got all the right, all the right pegs and all the right holes, basically. Like they've got the perfect, they don't have the perfect players to play like Tottenham or Manchester City might want to do, but they do have the perfect set of players to play to, to play in this particular way, which is, you know, obviously clever recruitment from them. They've got a manager who knows exactly how to play in this way. A manager um, who, who everybody was laughing at them for hiring. I mean, even their super fan, Gary Lineker, was, was laughing true, at them for hiring this guy. I mean, that's just, that's just people getting things wrong, which happens all the time. Like, I think that he is, He's been perfect, really, to kind of hear this all together. I think they caught a lot of people, people by surprise. Like, I think if people knew at the start of the season how they would go about things, they might have shown them a bit more respect, and that means that they might not have got some of their early wins. Like, I remember when they they West Ham. I remember when they won at West Ham in August. West Ham thought they could just show up and roll over Leicester, and they got done on the break. And I think that happened quite a lot at the start of the season. People thinking it was just a team who were lucky to even be in the Premier League. And that got them the points advantage at the start, and then, and then they kind of they they've developed this this fantastically beneficial pressure free momentum, if you know what I mean. Like, so it's easy to compare them to Liverpool in twenty thirteen fourteen in a sense of coming from nowhere, surprising everyone. But that was a team which eventually buckled under the pressure of expectation from its own fans, whereas because Leicester is well, so also, also under the pressure of being chased by. Chelsea and Manchester City, who were a lot better that season than any of the chasing clubs this season. Yeah, that's true. I mean, City City did benefit from everybody else blowing it, which allowed them to to stroll across and win the title at the end of that year. And Leicester, I mean, if there had been, if any of the good teams or the big teams had played well this season or played as well as they should have done, then this Leicester side would currently be putting together a very admirable push for second or third. So I think they have. I mean, that's been as big a reason as any really in their being in this position but that the fact that nobody's expecting them to be there all year and I think it's the kind of the underdog element of it has has itself helped in a kind of positive reinforcement way as they as they've got closer and closer to the line. Jack, uh, there's another big day for Harry Kane for to just get back to Spurs here. His 20th and 21st league goals, so he scored 20-plus um, again this season as he did last year. I, I, don't, I don't know how it was in, in England necessarily, but I think over here there seemed to be a certain amount of reluctance to fully embrace the hype around Harry Kane when he first burst on the scene. Maybe he's a, you know, he's, he, he looked a little bit unorthodox in, in certain ways and maybe more ungainly than how we normally think of uh, Europe's top strikers. But surely he's getting into that bracket now. I mean, this is uh, incredible consistency after a few games earlier in the season when he wasn't scoring goals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, he told the papers the other day that he'd never felt, he never felt better this season than he did at Aston Villa last Sunday where he scored twice. He then scored twice again yesterday so that's four in the last two five in the last three in the Premier League and any sense that in February he was gonna he was slightly dropping off has been blown out the water I think he's I think he's probably Spurs's most important player in the sense that he's their least replaceable player like you could argue that Alderweireld or Dembele have played better this season but I mean without Kane they're nowhere but with Kane he kind of gives them he gives them almost everything they could want in a striker he's quick enough to run in behind he's big he holds it up he scores all types of goals he takes good penalties and he's really 
I mean, you sometimes you sometimes you do watch him play, and you think, well, maybe if they had a Aguero, Suarez, Sanchez level striker, they'd be ripping teams to shreds with that kind of quicker movement. But then you think there's not there's only what, three or four players like that out there, and Kane gives them almost everything they could want, and with all the added benefits of being. English, local, reliable, dependable, a nice guy, and all the rest of it, who fits perfectly into the environment that Pochettino is building. Jack, if you're calling it now the title race, it sounds like you're still Leicester, edging with Leicester. Leicester. Okay, I think the, the, the gap is going to get bigger, not smaller, in the next four games, I think. And I think Leicester will not even need to win their last few. <laughs> it's pretty, it. pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable stuff, but that's where we are this season. Listen, yeah. Jack Paperbrook, great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, lads. So, Jack, going for Leicester comfortably there despite feeling that Spurs are have been the better side for six months which I guess sums up, <laughs> sums up where we are at with this title race yeah um, well I think he's probably right I mean I remember a couple of weeks ago saying what was it last the week before last saying if they were to win five of the remaining nine then I think they're going to do it and they've already won two yeah so far most of the articles you read most of the pieces are about mathematically what they have to do to win the title yeah but that is all predicated upon Spurs winning all their games mm. so yeah if you're talking about realistically what they'll get away with you're yeah. not asking for a huge amount anymore I just kind of get the impression though that if they were to draw a game just like if they drew their next their, uh, who's it? Southampton at home in their next game that means they're one loss away from losing their lead and I just kind of think that as long as it's five points it's pretty comfortable but the second it they draw that one game, that might be all the encouragement that Spurs need. And Spurs are a very good team. Yeah, they are, and they're playing well. But the, but then they dropped the points against Arsenal. And Leicester, when they lost to Arsenal, in fairness to them, have bounced back from that point. So nothing so far has suggested that they're just going to fold mm. or anything like no, that. No, I'm, I'm talking more actually in just the general run-in of a title, as opposed to, you know, the, the dream has to end for plucky little Leicester. I mean, if this was Man City and they were five points up... You know, I would be saying the same thing. If 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 your team were five points behind Man City, all you're asking for them to do is to draw one game, and then the pressure is on in a in a big yeah. big way. So, and I, and I think we've gone past the idea of you know that it's unthinkable that Leicester would win the league. I think now I was ho- kind of hoping Leicester would draw that game on Saturday, just from the point of view of let's have a title running. Well, <laughs> I mean, well, I, I don't want I don't want anyone running away. With ah, it. I'd be if, happy for Leicester, Leicester to run away. With it, to be honest, if Manchester, oh. if if Leicester City were to win the next match and Tottenham were to lose theirs. Then Leicester would have a lead over Tottenham of eight points with six games to go, which is exactly the same that Manchester United had over Manchester City in 2012 when City ended up winning the title and goal difference with the Guero goal. Now, that was that, that's the kind, it shows the kind of collapse that's possible. If your confidence suddenly is affected and things start going against you. Manchester United were cruising. They were absolutely cruising. Manchester City... I remember we were in a terrible state. Balotelli had been sent off. They lost to Arsenal. It was like... Mancini had said the league it's, was it's gone. Finished. It's, it's finished. It's finished. Yeah, it's finished. And he's finished. Balotelli's finished. This whole thing is finished. It's finished. It's finished. And, you know, eight, eight games down, six games... Eight points down, six games to go. And Manchester United, who, you know, I think we can say, you know, the, we're, we're still a better team in 2012 than Leicester are now, managed to mess it up from that position. Look, the one, the one sorry, difference... The one difference is that Man City did have a game against United, which they won. So maybe that could have turned to five five points with five games. But, you know, it's possible. It is possible. It just doesn't look likely. Yeah, and I, 
I just kind of think that the last, say the last two 1-0s that they've had, like the 1-0 against Watford, that was a late goal, but they've scored at really good times mm. in the last two games. Where, you know, just as you're starting to tighten up maybe a little bit, they score, they've got something to defend. It, it It's a very simple equation all of a sudden, just don't concede, we've got another three points. Yeah. Just would, you know, if, if they concede first... Let's see how the nerves kind of start jangling and jangling there. Yeah, you, you boys can keep bringing up the potential pitfalls. Myself, Gary Lineker, Richie Sadler and King Richard III <coughs> will stick with our boys, Leicester. There, must be, uh, there, there must be other fans. Leicester Adrian Mole, probably. There you go. He was from Leicester, wasn't he? John Brown of ESPN. I'm pretty sure he was, yeah. Was at the Manchester Derby and a lot of the focus so far, John, in the last, even the chats we've had sometimes, has been focusing on what the people in charge of the club think about Van Hal and then the split over who should be his successor amongst the board. But we've kind of neglected to talk for a while about the supporters' feeling towards their current managers, their feelings, I should say, and whether or not they've changed at all. I mean, obviously, nobody's particularly happy with the side of football, but there's never been any sort of open revolt that that we've seen. Is this big local derby victory enough to get the fans firmly on side? Um, simple answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Louis van Gaal, um, I think my view now is that when Louis van Gaal leaves Manchester United, he might be remembered rather better than he's thought of at the moment by fans. Um, possibly because of introducing players like Marcus Rashford and, and things like that. But um, you speak to the rank and file of Manchester United fans and th- they just do not get Van Gaal. They don't like the way that his teams play. They agonise over the fact that all these substitutions be, seem to be substitutions of full-backs. Um, that his, uh, I actually find Van Gaal, I actually quite like the guy when I've listened to him in press conferences, but people reading that in newspapers and seeing it on the TV just don't understand what the guy's talking about. Manchester is a, as a city uh, is a place where um, people don't like people talking nonsense. Uh, they like straight talking. The humour's wry, and Van Hal doesn't fit any of those uh, those expectations of people that people would have in Manchester. He's just a man who doesn't fit in in the city, and he's had some good results this season. I mean, he's beaten Liverpool home and away in the league. Uh, he's beaten Manchester City here. He, uh, he hasn't been beaten by Manchester City. He has pulled off good results, but the overall picture is of a manager who who has wasted money and Manchester United have not got any better under his management. It's interesting there, though, John. You point more to uh, personality issues. Uh, the, the, the problem that supporters have with him is over how he comports himself on TV and in print, as opposed, you know, as opposed to just it's simply being about his refusal to attack, attack, attack? Well, I, I, think, I think both are big factors in his unpopularity, let's say that, um, it, or his lack of popularity. He is a... Um, the football itself is probably the most damning thing against his name. The fact that Manchester United fans don't get to see entertaining football, which they see as their birthright um, and I just think that uh, Van Hal's refusal to bend refusal to uh, to change the way that he he plays the game is the fact that he plays football from what I think is the mid 90s when he was at his Ajax hey- heyday um, he, I, the thing is I think Van Hal likes being in Manchester he, he likes the city he likes his life there um, and he always says, doesn't he, that he, the people are very nice to him in, in the street and he gets on with people. Um, but I don't think that the fans who actually pay to go to the, 
to the ground have any will will miss him at all when he's gone and he will be going this summer so how much of his of the credit that he won for beating Manchester City would he have squandered by uh, turning his post match interview into a, into a a defence of Liverpool for losing 3-2 at Southampton he, I mean I, he essentially said uh, you've seen what Liverpool did today they were 2-0 up then they lost 3-2 the only reason for that is because they didn't manage to recover fully after the Europa League. So uh, I wondered how uh, people would have felt about that. Well, <laughs> I think, as, as I said before, he doesn't make, him, make it easy on himself by... by he, he, he talks too much, doesn't he? Was there any need to go down that route to talk about that? Not really. He could have just, you know, soft-shoed it a bit more, talked about how it was a good win, how it, it showed that his team kind of pull off good results. But no, that's not Louis van Gaal's way. And that's the thing that jars with so many people. Um, he the, he wasn't really prodded much about these. I mean, maybe it's got to the point where, where this uh, pack of reporters who've, you know, he's, uh, as he says, you've been writing, I'm going to get sacked for four months. Um uh, they they didn't really um, ask him for much about this story that emerged in El País over the weekend. And this was from Diego Torres, who, as we know, has had a lot of uh, well-sourced stories about Jose Mourinho over the years. And his report was that Jose Mourinho has already signed a pre-contract with Manchester United, and which includes penalty clauses, that uh, if they don't have him installed as coach by May the 1st, or signed as if they haven't signed a, a full contract with him by May the 1st, they have to give him £5 million. And then if they don't have him installed by June 1st, they have to give him another £10 million. Which is, you know, sounds like a lot of money to win in penalty clauses. I mean, first of all, do you believe this? And secondly, why would they sign that type of contract with him? Well, I, I certainly believe that Jose Mourinho will be manager of Manchester United next season. It seems that he's the only, apart from the Ryan Giggs factor, he's the only runner in the race. As for this, as for this uh, contract thing of uh, penalty clauses, um, it does sound like another piece of Ed Woodward negotiation mastermind <laughs> stuff, doesn't it? Um, to my mind, Jose Mourinho is desperate for that job. There's nothing uh, that I've heard or seen in the last few months as as made me think any different. So why are they signing that type of deal? I really don't know. But as you say. Diego Torres is, you know, just about the best around when it comes to getting stories of that nature. And so you'd have to say that it has a, a, a high amount of credibility. Um, and uh, Jose Mourinho is going to be the next manager of Manchester United. And if he's not, he's going to be very rich. <laughs> John, what about uh, Manchester City now? And the focus, obviously, that everyone has at the moment is on what exactly Pep Guardiola will be taking over next season. Uh, you know, a lot of that focus is... Um, on the fact that they might not be in the Champions League, but realistically, if he is going to man- manage to uh, if he is going to manage to launch a long term project there, one year out of the Champions League, I don't know if it's that necessarily the end of the world. But it's the bigger issue, the fact that as Ken uh, was saying in the uh, in the Irish Times this morning, he's taking over a team that has effectively ceased to be, and uh, we'll have to start pretty much from scratch with this side. Yeah, he will. I mean, the the rebuilding job he's got in Manchester City compared to that that he had at Barcelona or Bayern Munich, is it, it seems much bigger, much more onerous, much more onerous a task. Um, I've seen City quite a lot recently, and it was no surprise to me that they played like that in the derby. I mean, I saw them at Norwich last weekend, 
um, and they were dreadful, really dreadful. Um, and he actually played in a very similar way where essentially you've got a front six of players and only Sergio Aguero seems capable of doing anything with the ball. Um, and they've also got a squad that's been allowed to age. Um, I mean, Martin Dimichelis is a guy that's taking, uh, well, whatever the opposite of plaudits is uh, for his performance. But let's face it, Martin Dimichelis is probably two years past his best or two years over the hill. Um, I do remember he was a player who used to be very good against Luis Suarez two or three years ago, but um, he shouldn't be in the team. It's not it's not Martin Dimichelis' fault that he's there, that he's playing. You know, he's been exposed by his manager. Pellegrini and the squad that they've built during his reign, um, which obviously, you know, the, the, the recruitment is done by Chiqui Bigurastain. Um, you actually look at the players they've signed during that time, during the time that uh, Bigurastain and Soriano, the chief exec, have been in charge. And I think the best player they've signed during that time is Fernandinho. Now, I think Fernandinho is a decent player, but if he is he really the best player that they've signed? That's actually the, that is the case, and that shows you that the recruitment of the club has been disastrous, almost as bad as that of Manchester United, um, a team that cannot do without Vincent Company, who essentially Pellegrini overplayed him and you know it forced him again. He uh, suffered another injury. And then you're left with a player like Mangala, who costs £42 million, and Dimichelis in defence, and they were atrocious. And they, um, Pep Guardiola has got to build and rebuild that squad. They're obviously going to have real money thrown at it, but you know, I think this is a test of how good a, a manager Guardiola is. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if that's, if that's a fair thing to say, because Guardiola is... Uh, is not you know remember we were talking a, a couple of weeks back and you were saying that Louis van Gaal was a little bit uh, nonplussed by the fact that Ed Woodward had kind of handed him a checkbook and said okay Louis go out and do your transfer market magic and he was kind of like well I've never really done that to be honest it's not really my area of expertise going out signing players you know talking to agents I kind of I'm a coach Guardiola seems to me to be the same type of coach as van Gaal he's used to being provided with players by the club. Uh, I mean, he's obviously taken the initiative in some uh, transfers. I can think of Thiago at Bayern Munich, who was obviously very keen to get. I'm sure he's got a couple of players in mind that he'd like to sign, uh, and that Chiki Bagheerstein uh, knows all about that. But it is Bagheerstein's job to provide him with a squad. And based on what we can see from Manchester City this season, he's actually been asleep at the wheel. Because this is a this is a team that's I'm look I look through that team and I can only see a couple of players in the squad that Guardiola is likely to um, to be happy with you know I mean I, and and you're including in that players like you know Raheem Sterling who I'm sure Guardiola thinks has probably got a long way to go it's just that he has the potential to do it the rest of the squad is really a busted flush yeah yeah I've got to agree with you and yeah I do agree with you about Bigurstein he he's got to take the well, he's got to accept responsibility for for what's gone on. What I mean um, is, I, I don't actually see how Guardiola can turn this around. I really don't. I mean, I, okay. I, you know, he, uh, he comes in, he comes in at, at, at uh, Bayern Munich and inherits a squad. He the the challenge that he had was, okay, this is a squad that's won everything. You know, how do you keep them interested? And he, I think he managed to to do that. You know, he said, okay, we're going to learn a different style of play and so on and so forth. But the winning mentality was there. You know, you had these guys who were who were really champions, you know, and were they, they played with a lot of pride. They wanted to win every game. 
There's nobody like that at Manchester City apart from Kevin De Bruyne. He's the only one. I mean, Vincent Company, you, you mentioned, but he's got so many injuries at this stage. <laughs> he's just a kid from Shrewsbury. He's in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Um, now, I, I, look at, I look at the City team and I don't see those types of players there at all. And I, I can't, I don't understand how Guardiola is going to come in and, and sort of sprinkle Guardiola dust over these guys and, and make them into what they're not. Well, I mean, that's what I meant when I said it's a test. If Guardiola can make that squad with a couple of additions into English champions again, that makes him the best manager in the world, really, doesn't it? it you know, it, it, you've got to, yeah, to, to go through the depart- each department of the team, and you've got a, you've got a, a squad that needs clearing out so desperately. But Guardiola may not be able to do that because City do have to walk a. Financial fair play, tightrope. They also have players on long contracts. I mean, there's this yeah. I mean, the Yaya Toure thing keeps rumbling on, doesn't it? He's got years left on his contract. Um, he's a player that will not fit into Guardiola's system. You'd have to say. I mean, his agent has already suggested that. Um, and the players, the thing is, the players that City have got that are their best players, apart from Kevin De Bruyne that you mentioned, are all players that were bought by Roberto Mancini, which is half a decade ago. So yeah, um, but yeah, as I say, if Guardiola manages to turn that group around, then I suppose that shows two things: one, that English football is perhaps not as strong as we might think it is, and I don't think either of us think that uh, it's strong at all. Um, and also that he really is a great coach that can inspire players to great things that they have proved not capable of doing this season. City are a mess, aren't they? They're a bigger mess than Manchester United at the moment, and that's quite some achievement. <laughs> all right, John, thanks a million. Cheers, lads. City dog at his home at Motherwell. You're a wee mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging. Speak for my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so what's up, don't try to get some beep. You know me, but I can't yell weep. I can't yell weep, I can't yell weep. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell weep. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans. You just need to fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get out, get out! He's your biggest fool. You sound pretty damn beat about the one of the about the possibility of supposedly the best manager in the world being employed by one of the richest clubs in the world mm. actually having any meaningful impact. Well, yeah, I'm sure he will have a meaningful impact, but uh, well, you said you, can, you can't turn it around. It. I think the meaningful impact that he will have initially will be uh, in the seat of the pants of many of the current Man City players as he boots them out the door of the club. <laughs> because very impactful. Yeah, because I don't see how these uh, how these guys can you know live with themselves really. The way you kind of have to hold on to a few players, though. I mean, I you know I don't know that you can start from scratch. Literally sell fifteen players. Did we mention Raheem Sterling there? He'll keep Sterling. I think Sterling. Oh, well, Sterling, Sterling is, and De Bruyne. Are Sterling might train on. List, you know what I mean? Sterling. Sterling is still plastic. Let's say he's still got. Uh, he can still become. A great player. Also, you're laughing at Joe Hart. Why, why, why are you laughing at the possibility? Just a kid Hart? from Shrewsbury. That's all right. He was in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Well, Guardiola, I think, likes players who don't sound so amazed to be there. I mean, okay, Joe Hart. Fair enough. He's 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 a he's a fan first and foremost. You know, he's a football fan. 
Um, but, you know, Joe Hart, I mean, well, Joe Hart actually is, has got injured at a bad time. We'll wait and see how serious his injury is. The biggest issue, in fact, in footballing terms would be that maybe Joe Hart doesn't play enough football for mm. Guardiola's like I mean, look who he's had. He had Valdez and he pinned a lot of his passing game around the fact that his keeper can actually start off those attacks. Neuer. And Manuel Neuer is a central midfielder disguised in the body of a very good goalkeeper. Yeah. Slightly deep-lying central midfielder. <laughs> so he might be... Usual position on the team. He might be looking for that. But I just, I just think it's the, it's the competitive, the basic competitive instinct that's missing from so many of these players. They've obviously been there, quite, most of them have been there quite a while. They've won things. And they don't really... There's just no kind of urgency about what they're doing this season. It's just been the same. It's been the same. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne is the only player who you see, uh, and okay, we haven't actually seen him since January because he's been injured, but he's the only Manchester City player who is out there and really seems to be trying to play the game at a really high tempo, make things happen, looks like this is really important to him. You know, he's like, I'm trying to make a name for myself here. The rest of the Man City players are just like, Ugh, I can't believe we have to do it. There's no recovery time in this league. Maybe I can go to PSG. You know, I, I get that sense off a lot of them. I don't really think that these... Are, are these players are matched the kind of look at look at Guardiola and how insanely competitive he is? You know he is like he loses the game and he he freaks out. You know what I mean? It's like he can't he can't take it. He really it drives him insane. He can't he can't manage one of these clubs for longer than a couple of years because he, his head ends, ends up melting. You know. Whereas a lot of these guys and are the, just a little bit too relaxed for him. And the two clubs that he's managed have won everything. I mean, everything. what's he going to be like if they don't win the league next year? Embarrassed. And you're like everyone will be laughing at him. See, that's the other thing, because he comes, he he arrives as like, oh, here comes the great Guardiola. You know, fifty percent of the reporters there will be there primarily in a sarcastic capacity. He knows that <laughs> to report on. Oh, the great Guardiola has somehow failed to. Well, you know, the Premier League is just a little bit different. The you great know, leveler, the Premier League. He knows all that, so the you know the pressure is is going to be high as always, and I don't. And the players have got to show they feel it too, and it just looks as though they don't care. He's also got to take that pressure on on board because he had the chance to manage Manchester United. Either he could pretty much manage um, you know many of the top clubs. He's chosen Manchester City, mm. so he obviously feels he can't really then argue the case that well actually the players weren't as good as I thought they were going to be. He's going to have to deal well, with they're, that. They're uh, giving him a fairly uh, fairly good look at how good or bad they are over the last six months. Matt Williams and Shane Horgan were in top form as always as we wrapped up our Six Nations coverage in our first podcast of the week. So get uh, listen to that whatever means by whatever means you usually listen to these podcasts. In the meantime, rate us on iTunes and leave a nice, healthy comment there. A nice, constructive, um, positive, maybe, positive, maybe even sycophantic comment. Just leave it, <laughs> leave it there. Leave a few in there if you can. Thanks, Ken. Oh, Thank you're you, polite and seldom late. <laughs> That'll do. Thanks, Thanks Murph. Thanks Thank for you, Ken. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 